You're listening to an episode of the Break the Cycle podcast on the SVTV network. So I've been working in the communications industry since 2012 and in that time I've loved it, hated it, questioned it, avoided it, gotten back to it, loved it some more question it again very healthy relationship <laughs> it's been a wonderful journey and the lessons have been profound recently i had two of my colleagues and in a sense teachers as guests on the show devya khanna and tushar bajaj and they very generously answered all my questions and still do what i did not fathom however was the show reaching the ears of Divya's professor at Columbia University Frank J Oswald who is also a communication strategist and a writer he's consulted the likes of Accenture Yahoo and many more so i'm sure you can imagine my surprise when i see an email from frank telling me how he felt about the show needless to say i had a major excited child moment very privately and i took this opportunity to invite frank on the show to talk about something i have longed to discuss and that is ethics in the communications industry i see why they were called in the voice of reason this has been one of the most illuminating discussions i've had and i hope you enjoy the episode as much as i did i'll see you on the other side and we're on hello frank <laughs> Well, hello, Hidal. Five minutes ago, I just—I think so. I think so. I know it's good evening your time. It's still good morning uh, my time. So we're connecting New York City to uh, New Delhi. That's pretty cool, don't you think? It is. It is. I mean, I'm honestly had someone asked me three, four months ago whether whether I thought this was going to be possible. I would have said no, because I was so stuck with this show just being a very. Uh, face to face inside a studio talk to people kind of setup but it hasn't been and i mean it's it's beautiful to see even with all the limitations that i <laughs> that i end up dealing with and i realize it's only a limitation if you let it like if you yeah, well there you go it. there you go well at least you can still get a haircut look at mine it's like out of control i'm I'm like going back to my 1970s self at heart. I don't know what's going on up there. I look like I belong in the Bee Gees or something. <laughs> I still love the Bee Gees. I will say that. <laughs> They're good. <laughs> They were good. <laughs> and uh, uh, about this, this happened totally by accident because I tried cutting my hair on my own. It's not fun. It sounds like a mistake. Not fun. <laughs> well, what do you want to talk about today? I wanted to uh, so I we were connected through uh, a mutual friend divya who was on the show and we were talking about boundaries at the workplace because uh, i think with her and i it, it was a subject that we had been discussing for months and she uh, like when she connected us on email i loved the fact that uh, i loved the subject that you deal with uh, you teach ethics and persuasion at columbia university i do i do i've been uh, i've been at uh, columbia 
teaching now for about a decade at HAR, and um, it all came about kind of accidentally, which I can explain to you a little bit, but that's how I met um, your colleague, Divya, and actually she was one of the uh, superstars. Don't let her know that. Don't broadcast that to her. Don't, don't, don't let her get a big head or anything, but she was really one of the... <laughs> she was one of the standout students in my class and we've kept in touch over the years and I'm glad that she did. So that's how that's how we've connected now. But I, I do teach those two classes. It's a master's degree program in strategic communications. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it uh, today, especially the bookends of persuasion and ethics, you know, couldn't be more important and trying to find that intersection where we can do our jobs and be ethical persuaders and feel like good people at the end of the day is getting harder and harder. And so that's what I help uh, students figure out. It's, uh, I, I love how you said that, persuade someone ethically. Could you explain that to me? Sure, because sure. I, to me personally, I think ethics, so ethics have been like in my head, a very subjective term and people just throw that in as and when they feel like. No, absolutely. And that's one of the problems. I think that people use terms like ethics and morals interchangeably mm -hmm. and don't really know what the terms mean. And uh, I think another thing at HAR is that we react intuitively mm -hmm. um, rather than analytically to what is uh, either ethical or what is moral. And that's a lot of that goes back to our own instinctual evolution. So if someone asks us whether something is right or wrong, we typically have a real knee-jerk reaction, almost immediate, as opposed to something like maybe, you know, buying a house where <laughs> I might have this long drawn out analytical process. So when you think about ethical persuasion, there are people who have actually broken it down and um, some of the folks that I really admire, actually going back two decades, came up with something that they call the Teres test, T-A-R-E-S. Okay. And to me, it's always been the easiest shorthand for a discussion about what is ethical persuasion. So T stands for truthfulness, mm -hmm. not just is something true, because I could tell you something true, but not be totally honest with you. I could still be deceptive, which is one of those lines I'm uh -huh. all fun. And so it has to be truthful. Um, and so the A stands for authentic. Um, are we representing our true selves mm -hmm. or are we putting on some sort of a false front to be able to manipulate someone as opposed to persuade someone? Um, the R stands for respect respect for the persuadee. Are we doing something that can genuinely help him or her? Or are we trying to manipulate him or her for our own ends? Mm -hmm. So this goes back to sort of classic ethics, you know, going back to Immanuel Kant, which is, are we doing something for our own um, ends? Um, are we treating people like a means to some end for ourselves? Mm -hmm. Or are we treating people like people? And therefore, we have to have respect for, for their needs. The E is, is for equity, and equity is sort of a, a stand-in for fairness. Mm -hmm. So right now, for instance, there's an awful lot of micro-targeting of vulnerable communities, and that would be considered inequitable. I have power, you don't have power. And now with the tools of persuasion, I can exert that power to get you to do things, particularly if it comes to elections or other 
other kinds of choices that mm -hmm. you may not want to do. And then the last one is social good. So if you slow down, and that's the kind of the starting point to all of all of this, these classes is to go from this sort of instinctual or intuitive framework that we're all bred to have. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is what I should do. And just slow down and say, okay, wait a minute. There are tools available to me. And this Tara's test is one of them. Something truthful. Um, is it authentic to who uh, I am or the organization that I'm representing? Um, does it show respect for the persuadee? Um, is the appeal uh, equitable? Is there fairness in our relationship? Um, that can also be boss and subordinate. You know, a boss can force us to do many things that we don't want to do. It's not an equitable relationship. It can be coercion, not persuasion. And then S is, is, is it for an overall social good? And when you start breaking messages out like that, it gives you some pause because mm -hmm. not a lot of things pass that test because we're driven by, we're driven by, by results. And those results or that metric has become how we are rewarded, how we are punished, um, how our careers are built, aren't they? You, you, you hit the nail and in fact you <laughs> set me up for my next question right away. So, <laughs> I'm trying to help you out here. <laughs> I've been a part of uh, so I've been a part of the communications industry, so to speak, for about eight years out of my ten years of working. I'm not going to talk about those two years, those two missing years, because they're not relevant to this. I won't force you. I won't force you. I was training military and law enforcement. It has nothing to do with communication. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but so I kind of put that on the back burner uh, most of the times. But I have had a very it's it's amazing how I wrote this today. I have had a love-hate relationship with the communications industry for eight years. I have, uh, and coincidentally, I started, like, my entry to this was in digital communication. Right. Or digital PR, as they call it here. And I've always wondered, uh, or rather, I've recently wondered, and I've asked this question to a lot of people, like, the is it just me or is there a lot of posturing when it comes to brands trying to reach out to people? And it was more obvious. It has become more obvious to me. Um, and this is probably a, this is probably a bias uh, showing up that when it comes to social situations, for example, a movement like black lives matter. Sure. You had every brand jumping on the bandwagon to show support. Now, how many of them actually show support? Versus how many of them are just jumping on a trend that showed up? Makes me want to understand the ethics that kind of go in the communications industry at a baseline. Because everything else, I think, just stacks up on that. But at a baseline, where do you think, what kind of ethics do you think that we need to have as an industry? Sure. I, I think that's a, that's a really good question. If you just even think at her about something as simple as that uh, TARES or T-A-R-E-S test, you know, for a lot of organizations, you know, get jumping on the bandwagon like that wasn't authentic. Mm -hmm. You know, their, their boards don't represent diversity. Their senior management doesn't uh, represent diversity. Um, what they were seeing was an opportunity they thought they feel, you know, to get involved in a conversation and to, to kind of give them an old fashioned halo 
Um, I think more and more people are learning that that doesn't work and it can actually backfire, which I think is a positive thing. Mm -hmm. But unless it was really authentic or core to that organization's being, then they really had no business doing it. And unfortunately, people who work for their agencies or people who work um, underneath decision makers often get forced because other people are doing it. And that's, that's why it becomes, you know, really, really, really so, so important. Um, I think that, you know, right now corporations have a great opportunity to get involved and to create genuine change, but it can't just be with donations and it can't just be with words and it can't just be with tweets and uh, Instagram posts and, uh, and videos. It, it has to be through action. And so many of the organizations don't even have diversity and inclusion within their own ranks and have no business. They have no business trying to hijack um, those for their own means. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if you even think about that in terms of the, the idea of the respect for the persuadee, basically what that communicator is saying is, I want to benefit even though I'm not going to generate any benefit in return. I think if I hijack this cause, people will like me more, or maybe people will buy something from me, or maybe it'll give me a halo, sure. as opposed to what that is going to do to help someone else in an authentic way. And, and I think that's the conversation that, um, that we have to learn to have. If you, if you think at heart about, about why, why you were, you were probably um, attracted to communications is that we've never been in an, in an environment where trust, trust matters more to communications, to you and me communicating, to um, a company um, communicating to, to either clients or to uh, customers, but we've been driven by transactions as opposed to trust. Mm -hmm. And why? Because transactions are really easy to measure. So if I create that Black Lives Matter video and suddenly it gets 10,000 likes and 5,000 shares and gets positive commentary somewhere on Twitter, well, wow, those are like ching, 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 ching. Those are all great transactions. Trust is something that's really long-term. Mm -hmm. It's much harder to measure. And I think what's happening now is that a lot of communicators, including myself, you know, maybe yourself and your work, were seduced by those short-term kinds of transactional gains, and we're also rewarded for them. You get pats on the head, you get promotions, you get recognition, you get better jobs, because that's what people um, recognize. And yet at the same time, people- We deliver results. <laughs> yeah, we, we deliver results, we deliver results. So everybody is talking about trust. And uh, I mean, it's so obvious how important it is, but we're being driven by transactions. And so that's, again, a, just one of those things we're just slowing down, understanding what's actually going on in our environments, this, this tension between those two long-term and short-term things, um, helps understand what's, what's going on. It, it, it really, really does. Um, it does make it easier, but it, it helps going in to understand what's going on. I think you've answered this question because I was going to ask you like, why has there been such a, because it, it goes back to, it goes back to companies uh, using a very generic statement. Of, we want to make the, we want to make things convenient. We want to make things better. We want to make the world a better place. 
I know I sound like I'm hating on brands and the industry. That's not true, <laughs> but it, it it does beg the question why there's been such a drastic rise in, in, in such practices, especially especially when it comes to your uh, these companies that just blew everything uh, out of the water, just like, like an Uber or uh, yeah, yeah, Viva. Yeah. Like Viva crashed in a way. And yeah. Fire Festival, for example, that was that was a disaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Well, I, well um, I'll, I'll answer that question in a more holistic way in a minute. But for instance, um, did you watch any of the Fire Festival documentaries that I, were streamed? Um, so I read up about it because what I had done was I decided to avoid watching or rather spending time on Netflix or Prime or watching anything. Right, right, right. Yeah, that, it was a conscious decision more so because I wanted to kind of shut out the information intake for a while. Right. But it did kind of, but I did kind of read up about it and I was just like, how did you manage that? Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that people like us facilitated it. And so, you know, when, when, you, when you kind of come out of that, uh, um, you know that 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 period where you where, where you'll you'll open yourself up to some of these these uh, streaming services again. I, I'd watch it because there are so many people, young, smart, intelligent, bright, brilliant people, principled people. Um, you know there isn't anyone that I know who's come through my classroom or that I meet on a daily basis that thinks of themselves as a bad person. But we get into these work environments and suddenly. It was something like Fire Festival. All of a sudden, all these transactional things became the drivers. You know, we're going to create this social media campaign and put up this colored square, and it's going to be shared everywhere on Instagram. And we're going to, you know, sell out in 24 hours. And wow, we're going to be a part of the biggest thing in the world. And even though every step of the way, they said, "Hey, wait a minute, this something's not right here. You know, this doesn't work. This doesn't feel right." But nobody really stepped up and that that happens because we get drawn in but on a on a bigger on a bigger uh, um, kind of framework the thing that concerns me is it used to be really easy to figure out who the bad actors were they used to be you know old white dudes like me just with less facial hair you know so it was you know uh, uh, um, let's see uh, you know Jeff Skilling and Ken Lay at Enron and it was uh, Bernie Madoff you know the the Ponzi scheme investor. And, you know, more recently it was uh, John Stumpf at uh, Wells Fargo, and they all had this sort of thread of deception. But now all of a sudden you have, you know, people who are young and people who represent sort of the new way of doing business. You have people like Travis Kalanick at Uber. You have Elizabeth Holmes at uh, Theranos. You have Adam Newman, you know, at, uh, at WeWork. And, and Billy McFarland, I don't know if I can include him at Fire Festival, but, but you have all these individuals. And when you try to break it down, you see that, that all of a sudden these companies are all in, uh, share some, some different um, qualities. Number one, it's growth at all costs. So everything is about growth. It isn't measured against anything else. The only metric is growth, whether it's users or whether it's uh, number of offices or, or you know, number of locations our testing equipment is, everything's of growth at all costs. These are really high demand, high pressure environments. 
And if you ever hear the phrase, lose yourself in your work, that's exactly what these places are. These are such high demand, high pressure environments that you get in. Maybe you're attracted by this high level purpose, you know, that I'm going to revolutionize medical testing or I'm going to uh, make, uh, make transportation as, uh, as readily accessible as running water. And I'm, I'm really attracted, but I get involved. And now these things are such high demand and there's such high pressure. I lose myself in the work. There's a real cultish loyalty to the cause culture, you know, so all of a sudden, you know, this is so worth it. Everything we're doing, if I'm working till 11 o'clock, if I've got to work all weekend long, it's like this cultish uh, loyalty to a cause. There's real single-minded short-term metrics, usually month to month or quarter to quarter that have to be met regardless of what other costs. Um, a fundamental thing that starts to get into what we do is that there's, there's a fake it until you make it mindset, meaning that we're building something really, really, really important. So we're always going to stretch the truth a little bit because we're going to get there. We, uh, we will be able to do this. And that, that's a part of the game. That's all a part of the game. Fake it till you make it is part of the game. And then the last part, which really involves us, is you have celebrity CEOs, um, with really compelling and, and unfortunately increasingly deceptive narratives that people like you and I help develop. And when you put all of those things together and then the pressure to continue to either get funding from outside sources or to go public or all those other financial incentives, it's tough. And if you're on the inside seeing this, um, number one, you're probably bound by a non-compete kind of of contract that uh, doesn't allow you to uh, a confidentiality agreement that doesn't allow you to go out and, and explain what's going on. And you have a sort of sense of sunk cost. You know something, I've committed so much of myself to this. And there's like this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, if I only make it, you know, how many people at WeWork or Theranos or, you know, early days of Uber thought, wow, if I just stick this out, I'm going to be a multimillionaire. I'm going to be a multi-multi-millionaire. So maybe doing bad things, I can look the other way because the rest of my life, I'm going to do good things. And that's really dangerous when you think about it. So we've gone from, you know, old white dudes who are kind of greedy and do this, you know, sort of in the back room to <laughs> young people who are doing this openly and, you know, almost like a celebration that this is the way business is now done. That's kind of dangerous, right? It is. It kind of, I mean, it, I, I kind of equate that to the rise of the the recent in Instagram entrepreneurship influencer folk. Wow. Because they're kind of doing the same thing, right? Like you've got these guys. I have had ads show up of people showing me Lamborghinis and and all the cars that they've bought and the mansions that they've got because of some thing that they did and they want to teach you how to do it so that you can get that too and it's all hustle 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 and you realize at, at, at one point that how much of this is one how much of this is ethical two how much of how much of it is like you said equitable right what is the price that i am paying to get all of this all of this half the stuff I don't need, so to speak, 
<laughs> just to just to make myself just to validate uh, validate this whole construct of if you have a mansion and you have a bunch of cars you've made it in life yeah and and people are also manufacturing the appearance of those lifestyles so just the truthfulness of it is is to be questioned because there are an awful lot of of people who have you know have in in some way either borrowed or bartered or 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 loaned or gone into hock for all of these things for the impression of success Mm -hmm. to help them build success and you know one of the things that that ethical analysis leads you through is, well, what's the impact on all of the, the different um, audiences that are involved? And one of the impacts at HAR is what is the, what is the impact on, on really young people now who are, are addicted to, to their phones, to TikTok, to Instagram, to all of these kinds of storytelling, is that now when you ask what young people, ask young people what they want to be, you know, the top two or three response is typically, I want to be a YouTuber or I want to be an influencer. <laughs> now, th- now think about that. Now that also is really destructive. This is a bubble that will burst because I think a lot of companies too have been paying for so-called micro-influencers and influencers realize a lot of these numbers are really uh, inflated and some of them are downright phony. Mm-hmm. And that they're not having any impact at all. So, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of impact from that, and so we're driven. And if you think about ethics in a really big sense at heart, which I try not to do because then I really have brain freezes, is we're contributing to a greedy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You know, we're contributing to want. We're contributing to selfishness. We're contributing to um, things that are not very healthy for society as a whole, even though our values, our personal values might be about all those things, including social responsibility. But suddenly our drive to acquire something or to defend ourselves gets in the way of those values. And that's, that's another one of those things that people have to recognize is that all of us have foundational values, but those drives can be... Um, those drives can really be um, initiated, inspired, you know, by other people. And all of a sudden you're driven more by that Lamborghini than the, you know, the, the need to help someone else who has, has nothing. You know what I mean? Because I measure myself against what I think other people have and what I don't have. That's a really, that's a loop that never stops, right? I, I do wonder how we got here because it's that thing, right? Like there is such a huge, it's, it's that environmental construct of society that says you've made it if you're rich. What do you <laughs> yeah. mean by that? Right. What do you mean you've made it if you're rich? And all right, let's, let's step away from the, from the, uh, like, I feel like we're bashing on entrepreneurs. For a while. We are, we are, we are, we I'm are. That's okay. To, I'm going to move to brands for a second. Like, sure. Um, you know, the whole point, at the end of the day, you're selling a product, right? When you're selling a product, what's the, like, it's that why. Like, I, I love how Simon Sinek says, like, start with your why. Why do you want people to use this product? Why are you making this product? And I know I sound naive and very idealistic when I say that, because obviously the ultimate answer is you need money. 
because that's that's currency <laughs> that's social currency that's what makes it's 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 what makes you do the rest of the things that you need to do it's what powers the world but then my question comes in is like what's the price you're willing to like what, what how far are you willing to go to do this how far are brands willing to go to sell the story i'm not going to say product because ultimately every product every brand sells a story how far are you willing to go to sell that story and what like how much of it has to do with just the environmental construct that exists since i can't even begin to imagine when well i i think there's a lot of lot of questions there and and i agree with you i don't want to go down the rabbit hole of of negativity I think that I think that we're actually in an exciting place where we can make a difference exactly about what you're talking about, because there's there's a lot of positive things going on right now, too. So there's a there's a real rise in both the conversation and a commitment to um, stakeholder management versus shareholder management. So the view that CEOs need to look at the impacts on all stakeholders mm-hmm. and not just the value to shareholders. So really, that's a really important conversation here in the United States, extremely influential organization called the Business Roundtable actually changed its uh, um, uh, principles and philosophies to adopt this stakeholder uh, philosophy uh, mm-hmm. last September, which is just amazing. We, you've got a real growing interest from investors in what are known as ESG companies, environmental, social, and governance companies. So if you see funds that invest in companies that have um, good environmental standards, excellent social standards, and also good corporate governance, which includes inclusion and diversity, those funds are growing like crazy. So there's an outside interest uh, from people driving us to be good. Um, You have a lot of public pressure and you have a growing amount of employee pressure, employee pressure, especially at the big tech companies mm. on, on social responsibility. And so we've seen at a number of different tech companies, especially Google, um, where, where employees have had a tremendous impact in being able to leverage this idea of we don't want to just do social good to say we're doing social good. We, we really want to make want that. To do yeah. <laughs> really do it. And then I think the, the last part that's that's really good to me is that there's this rise of a new breed of CEOs like uh, Microsoft Satya Nadella. Yeah. So instead of the cult of celebrity, Nadella is is about humanity. And he genuinely is, but he's not, you know, he's not the typical, you know, Patagonia. Um, North Face, uh, REI, you know, all of the, the green companies that we know and love. Um, this is Microsoft. And <laughs> you know, I, I can't recall exactly when he took over. I think it was sometime within the last five years, Microsoft was in really bad shape. It's now, I think the valuation is now close to $1.5 trillion, has tremendous reputation and respect all over the world. And here's Nadella being the opposite of the celebrity CEO. He's really focused and saying so. I think all of those things are fantastic. Now, we as the storytellers have a choice, number one, who we're going to work with. 
You know, who are the people that we're going to work with? Are they genuine? Are they authentic? Do they believe in these things? And then for those that don't, how persuasive can we be that the long-term interests of this brand are just as important as those short-term trust, as that uh, short-term transactions? And that's really tough when those people are being rewarded um, based on their quarterly results or their monthly results or this campaign or what's going to happen. But we just don't want to be complicit. We don't want to be complicit. We don't want to just go along because this is the way the game is played. Right. Um, I had, um, you know, one of the reasons I went back to school and one of the reasons I ended up getting into communications ethics was um, I've been working in communications for 40 years. And that included a stint in 2007, 2008, working for a lot of the financial giants that helped create the global financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And that really knocked me on my butt because I thought, wow, I, I, I think I'm complicit in this. I helped create the stories that people believed about their financial stability, about mortgage-backed uh, 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 bonds, about all of these things. I, but at the time, I didn't think of myself. I was just doing the work. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know. So was I duped or was I complicit? And I think this idea of rising, raising our consciousness that we're no longer these sort of back, backseat passengers going along for the ride, yeah. but that we have a responsibility and a, a moral agency that we have to change things. Now, we can't change things every single time, but we can change things holistically. And a lot of it also you know, comes back down to that initial thing of who are we going to choose to work with? Because we become the work we do. Mm-hmm. We absolutely become the work we do. The, the number one thing that we do in our classes, if, if I think about it just in terms of, of, of breaking it down into like three components, is to be more conscious of our, um, our involvement with a lot of these activities and to recognize that we have a stake in the game and that we have a responsibility for what we're doing. We're not just creating campaigns and we're not just selling products, but whatever that company is ultimately doing, you know, something that's on us. Yeah. Um, the second one is, is to be committed. And that is that I can't just recognize it's going on, but I have to, I have to do something about it. I can't just think I'm a good person and take a step away. I have to do something. And the last one is to be empowered. Now, what the hell are you going to do about it? Because that means I have to be more persuasive. That means I have to be able to get more allies. And I also have to keep working so that I can pay my own bills. So it's that kind of altered consciousness so we don't just go along. This increased commitment that we have have as much responsibility as anyone else. And then an empowerment about about what to do. What are you going to do when you're put into that position? That's what, what my class is all about. I could, I totally agree. In fact, when you were mentioning this, um, I keep going back to this particular, uh, this particular person who I would say got me out of a really bad punk. Um, you, um, have you heard of Quest Nutrition? Yes, I have. As a matter of fact, yeah. 
So, so Tom Billu, when he was with Quest Nutrition, so he started his own thing called Impact Theory very recently, and it's a talk show, and it's a media. He's it's it's become a media company, and when you were talking about the CEOs who've become who've become very focused on actually doing good rather than saying that we're doing good, he's the first person who comes to mind. Yeah, because from switching from nutrition to suddenly going into something that deals with mental health right off the bat is was beautiful for me to watch absolutely and one thing that i really liked that he did which uh, which is going to be my next question he's put up a 25 point belief system which is like a which is like a, like i call it your code of your code for working in this life in this company however you want it and i haven't seen someone or any agency any brand any company be that explicit about uh, either their code of ethics or their value system or their models however they whichever nomenclature we want to use because like you said a lot of us are using those terms interchangeably no and, and I, I think the important thing adhar is that he's doing it himself mm-hmm. you know I think that, you know, one of the things that that happens a lot in organizations is they'll publish real high-minded values and even, you know, higher-minded, you know, codes of ethics. But then there's no systems in place to manage that internally. Um, The internal cultures don't support it. Um, People are not rewarded for abiding by it. And then the leaders themselves don't follow it. So it's been shown through, you know, numerous studies in those cases, no matter how good of a person you are individually, no matter how high your moral standards, that actually the, the social setting, the environment you are in dictates your behavior more than your personal standards. And that goes back to, you know, studies going back to the 1960s and Stanley Milgram at, at Yale University and how we follow um, through obedience or orders or the environment itself. Um, and we will defer responsibility or use something called ethical, um, ethical shading. So we'll, we'll try to eliminate that part of the decision from our everyday lives. But unless you have an organization like the one you're talking about that not only has those 25 belief systems, but then lives it internally, it won't, it won't happen. It won't happen because everything else that somebody sees when they walk in the office, or I guess we don't walk in offices anymore, when they communicate with individuals is it's, is that's not the way it works. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've worked on during the financial crisis was a a massive recruiting campaign to get the highest quality uh, students from the best um, universities all over the world. And so I'm doing research with their people and they're talking about values like, um, you know, respect and integrity. But when I would visit their office, I would see an entirely, I'd see an entirely different dynamic going on. And, and yet I went ahead and I created those materials and I helped bring more people into those environments. Think about that. That's on my conscience still till today, because I just said, well, you know, something that's somebody else's responsibility, or maybe I'm not seeing the whole picture. 
or you know eh, that's not really my place to speak up i'm just i'm just trying to get by yeah but in, but in fact you know something it, it was my place and i just didn't know what to do i didn't know what else to do and it was easier to to go along to go along if if you think about um something like uh think about something like human evolution and so our evolution as what we know as human beings, um, you know, as, you know, upright, standing on two legs, uh, uh, hominids is probably four to six million years. Um, but our intellects have only evolved over the last 200,000 to 300,000 years. And our ability to live in and work in societies only about 5,000 or 6,000 years. So our instinct for survival over four to six million years are so primal. We protect ourselves. We protect our families. We protect our things. But our intellects and our knowledge that we also need these social structures and, and things to survive, we've only developed those over thousands of years. And so when we get into those situations, if we don't take a step back and we don't say, hey, wait a minute, what's going on? Why do I feel this way? Those primal instincts, four to six million years, are just pushing us, mm -hmm. you know, like pushing me. I'm going to do the easiest thing here. I'm going to get this project done. Maybe I will or won't do this work ever again. And then before I knew it, six months later, the whole financial crisis all over the world and i didn't feel very good about looking at myself in the mirror anymore you know yeah but but we shouldn't you know think of ourselves as any different than anyone else this is primal these are instincts uh and and typically our moral instincts are inbred as well which is why you have to slow down and become more analytical it's 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 a really tough process because we're trained to think instinctual and in knee-jerk reactions about moral situations. And then we protect ourselves because when we face something that doesn't feel like the kind of person I want to be, we experience something called cognitive dissonance. So that's a conflict with the way I think or feel ordinarily. So right away, I'm going to either rationalize my behavior, I'm going to shut it off, I'm going to explain it in some other way because I don't want to feel bad about myself. And once you start to see those things as they happen, it's much, much easier to take a step back and, and, um, and to work through. But what if, you I were to ask, if I were to ask you, like, because you mentioned, I mean, even for something like this to happen, there's a certain degree of consciousness that you need to bring in. Hugely. Right? So, Hugely. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, and it really is. <laughs> I totally agree with you there. Yeah. Because uh, I think that's the dilemma that I face every day uh, in certain cases. Like I mentioned, I've got a love-hate relationship. There are days where I just love doing something because it's hitting that it's hitting that note of I'm doing something good, not for the sake of doing it, but it's going to lead to that. Versus right. doing something that I that I'm telling myself is good, but isn't actually happening. When you're faced with that, when you're faced with that dilemma, a lot of us, I mean, 
and I, I, I mentioned this to, to Divya as well. A lot of us get that advice, suck it up, deal with it. Yeah, that was a great part of your podcast, by the way. I thought that was fantastic. Thank you. But, um, and I, I'm, I'm guilty of that as well. I've told myself that, I've told my team that. Suck it up, deal with it. Right? Um, do you, like, how, how does one kind of change that, reconcile that, that issue of, of getting that faulty piece of advice, faulty in today's context? It worked. It was a great piece of advice at some point. It just doesn't work now. So how does one kind of, how does one person who's dealing with, with say a situation where the ethics uh, are not in line uh, or they're just going through an ethical dilemma, but they're still asked to do something uh, which, which doesn't kind of align with their, with their system. How do you reconcile that? What are the steps you take if there are any actionable steps at all? Yeah, I think you first have to relieve yourself of some of that anguish because there are an awful lot of people in that same condition and to um, absorb that, you know, too much as being some fault within yourself is crazy. It's just, uh, it's a part of, of humanness, but none of us has been trained with what to do in these instances and all of us have been rewarded to push through, to suck it up, to, to do all of these, these sorts of things. So the worst thing to do is to um, emotionalize it, run into your boss, complain, and never use the word, this is unethical. <laughs> if, if, you, if you ever don't want to get something done, um, call someone unethical, and you, know, you can pretty much assure that it's, it's going to be the case. There's a short-term answer, and then there's a longer-term answer. The, the short-term answer is, in situations where there are alternative solutions, where there are alternative solutions for achieving the same or similar objectives, it, it really is a creative problem solving uh, process. So one of the things that we talk about in our classes is that usually when we have an ethical dilemma, we see it as binary. This is right, and this is wrong. Which of these two things am I gonna choose? And so we spend an awful lot of time in our classes saying, what's the third solution? What's the third solution here? And if I can go in and sell this third solution successfully, then maybe I have a platform for being able to talk about this more broadly within my organization. Um, but we're really blinded to the fact that there's a third solution. I take students through a series of case studies and, in, you know, and I watch how they grow and develop just in this thinking process because they're going from um, fast thinking, sort of intuitive to analytical thinking. And initially, it's like, oh, I either have to quit or I have to do this thing. I have to quit or I have to do this thing. And, and oh my God, now I'm really getting myself worked up and now my heart is beating faster and now I'm going to start talking to people and I'm going to call my friends and this is unfair and maybe on Monday I'm going to charge in and tell my boss this is unethical. You know, well, no, there's... <laughs> What if there's a third, what if there's a third way to do it? And then I think that the other thing is on a bigger platform, which is typically that means you're not the only person feeling that way. Mm -hmm. And so what can you do to enlist like-minded allies within the organization to not create um, a series of complaints, but to actually create a series of solutions like you were talking about with, with Quest, which is 
what could we do within our org own organization to build in these structures so that over time we can become more like this? Because if you become more like this, you're going to also attract clients who are like this. Well, I because, because that is the way it works. And after 40 years, I saw either I would become the work I was doing or the work I was doing would attract more of the work I wanted to do. But I had to choose one or the other. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't let the work define me. And it was when I came to that conclusion um, after the financial crisis that not only did my work change, but also my happiness, my mindset, uh, my own measure of what I felt was successful, and my own ability to walk away from things when they weren't right. Um, but short term, um, third solutions, and then long term, sort of enlisting like-minded allies, and instead of getting together to bitch about it, you know, say, you know, something fundamentally long term, this really isn't good for us, and it's really not good for our clients. Um, I, I think the other, uh, I think the other thing I really enjoyed with your podcast with uh, with Divya was she said, you know, I, I created the "Don't be a dick man" rule, you know, <laughs> and it was like so right on the money. It was like, you know, we have a relationship here. We're gonna break our backs for you, and we're yeah. gonna go out of our way for you, but don't be a dick, man. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it was just so refreshing and so clear that if people understand that as a contract, as opposed to a threat, or, you know, some sort of aggravated uh, complaint, you know, all of a sudden, communication starts to change. Mm -hmm. But the more we go along, the more we facilitate, the more we become those backseat drivers, rather than sort of the, the boardroom leaders. And, um, our profession is subservient. You know, we are servants. Mm -hmm. We drive up to the drive-through window and, you know, somebody makes their order and you package it up, put it in a bag and, and let it go. Mm -hmm. And we really have to move from that sort of service, uh, make people happy, make people pleased to much more of a leadership role because the stakes are too high. Stakes are really too high. The person that you work with at any individual client is probably going to change in three months or six months because people move around. Um, but that organization, if it's going to live beyond a year or two or five years or 10 years, if these trends about genuine social consciousness continue, and I think they will, if they don't start changing and make those things inherent now, they're really going to suffer. And mm -hmm. so it's up to us to help them change as well. My second last question, and this ties in beautifully to that. How do we start? <laughs> <laughs> um, how do we start? Uh, which part, Adhar? Which which part do you want to start? Um, I th so I think the, the 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 major gap that's there, uh, and I'm someone who increasingly believes in the fact that the issue is not external; the issue is internal. You need a clean house before you start telling people, you know, what's wrong with them. So as someone who's helping, or rather, like you said, we're, we're here to serve, right? Even as leaders, we're here to serve. So if I am to switch from being someone who just packages your order, puts it in a bag and gives it to you, 
to turn into someone who says, you know what, what's in that package may not be good for you. How about you try something else? How do I move the needle from being there from, from point A to point B? Yeah, I, I, th I think from, I can only talk to what I did. Mm -hmm. Because if you, if you again either say outright that this isn't the right thing to do or you're doing something wrong, you're doing something unethical, you're going to lose that person immediately because anyone will see that as a personal affront. So you need to, you need to create a bridge strategy where you say, okay, we're, we're going to do this and now let's, let's talk about that. Were there other ways that we could have gone about this? Are there any impacts that we should have understood or thought about beforehand? Because I think it, it means dimensionalizing anything you do to include more than the client or the person that you're working with. Um, as soon as people start to look at the impacts on other people and understand that there could be negative consequences even to themselves in the long term, it helps change the decision-making uh, mindset. Um, I, th I think that's, that's really, really crucial. But if you don't do that as a bridge and you just immediately, you know, say, hey, wait a minute, I'm not going to do this anymore. It's going to have really radically bad, bad results. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's a mindset change to say, okay, we can do this. At the same time, have you considered? Have you considered these other factors? Can we get there in another way? Are you comfortable with the fact that it could have these three negative impacts? Is this what your organization wants to be long-term? And, you know, frankly, the, the people that we work with, if you're in a client relationship, are oftentimes so hyper-focused on whatever it is right there in front of them, they don't even think about the impacts on other people. Mm -hmm. um, there's something in um, sort of classic philosophy and, and ethics um, a philosopher by the name of Martin Buber. And he came up with this, this very simple idea that, that always is sort of a guiding principle. And, and, it, and, and it is um, I and thou versus I and it. I and thou, I and it. And so if I treat someone else as a person, as a thou, that is a relationship. But the moment I start treating someone else like an it, then I'm objectifying them and I can do anything that I want. And so it's moving the needle over time uh -huh. to stop, uh, get people to stop thinking about you and I as data and to start thinking of us as, as, uh, as Frank and as Adhar. And as soon as we can humanize that more, it changes the conversation. But it can't be done with sort of like, you know, Friday you went home and Monday I'm going to start doing this. You have to do it as a bridge. Mm -hmm. the, the biggest ethical dilemma we face as an industry over the next five and 10 years is that the digital tools have gotten so powerful that we often lose sight that we're actually dealing with people, you know, <laughs> with, uh, we're dealing with data. Yeah. And data, data is not people. And so that difference really changes the dynamic. And then when you put distance in it, if I'm talking to you over Zoom, that's a different relationship. If I'm talking to you in the same room, it's a different relationship. Very hard for me to deceive you or want to deceive you, uh, knowing that you're a martial artist. <laughs> and, 
and being in the same room. But if I don't know who you are, and you're just a data point, and I'm going to get rewarded by getting you to buy something, it's very easy for me because you're an it. And the more you're an it, the more my conscious doesn't worry about it. Right. My last question. Yeah, yeah. Reach out to you if you're comfortable with that. Well, I don't know. Give it to me. <laughs> Where can these people reach out to you? Oh, yeah. Well, of course, of course. I, I, I hope that they do. Um, so um, email's probably the easiest. Uh -huh. um, so it's my first name, Frank, F-R-A-N-K, um, dot, uh, my last name, Oswald, O-S-W-A-L-D, at columbia.edu, E-D-U. Mm -hmm. So frank.oswald at columbia.edu. I'm on email all the time. I respond like in crazy, crazy speed. I, the reason that I'm doing this later in my career is because the only way that I can change things long-term is by reaching out to more and more younger professionals like yourself who feel caught in these traps. And because, you know, my career is, is you know, coming to the end. But now if I can help a whole new group of people recognize these challenges and do something with it, hey, maybe I can help change the world too. Frank, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that, man. You're just tired. Yeah, I, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for this. This is yeah, yeah. such an eye-opener. Such an eye-opener. Yeah. Such a beautiful conversation. Yeah, don't feel alone with this stuff. I think that the, I think that the great thing is, is that this tug-of-war between your personal values and what you're experiencing at work, this duality of even trying to be two different people, it, different person at work than you are at home is something that a lot of people experience young and old and if people just got together and talked about it like this and started to do more than complain but just start to express how can we start to change this then we really can change things and i believe in that you can always count on me okay yeah <laughs> i'm going to be sending you a lot of emails <laughs> i'm always open to it at night no problem anytime day or night <laughs> Thank you, Frank. I'm going to stop the recording now. And okay. Channel more.